Well, hello and welcome. I guess it is a Thursday again, and we are back here with another uh, Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint live event. I'm uh, really excited to have you. My name, of course, is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, started the Alliance really to raise awareness about the issue of restraint and seclusion happening in schools across the, the country and really beyond. That said, we're, we're concerned about a lot of things beyond restraint and seclusion. We're concerned about um, restraint, seclusion, uh, corporal punishment, suspension, expulsion, all the things that are often being done to individuals in the name of behavior rather than actually supporting them. Uh, we're very concerned about um, approaches that are compliance-based and control-based rather than compassion and connection. Um, so we really try to do work to educate people and bring them together so that we can change minds, laws, policies, and practices. So practices like restraint and seclusion are no longer used and that we can have safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. And again, we wanna see these things happening everywhere. We, we don't wanna see people restrained and secluded in any setting, whether it's the troubled teen industry, whether it's um, the mental health settings, uh, even elder care. Uh, these are not things that we should be doing to people. So I appreciate you joining us today. Uh, always excited to have these um, these great events. Uh, today, I'm very excited to have Julie Roberts joining us. Uh, Julie is actually the founder of the Therapist Neurodiversity Collective, uh, an amazing uh, group um, that we're going to be talking about today and telling you all about the work that they're doing. Uh, it's an international collective of licensed and or credentialed therapists who believe that neurological differences are to be recognized and respected, uh, as is any form of human variation. Uh, they practice empathetic and respectful AB, ABA free therapy, uh, really a fantastic group, a fantastic movement as well, uh, moving in, in a great direction. So we will be taking questions following the presentation day. So Julie has put together an amazing presentation for us. I'm really excited about it. Uh, and we will be taking questions at the end of the presentation. Um, so feel free to put those in the chat at any time, but just know that we'll wait until we get to the end of the presentation. As always, I want to remind you that these sessions are recorded. So this will be available after the fact on uh, YouTube and Facebook. We also have an audio podcast version available as well. So with all that, uh, let's get right to why we're here. Let me go ahead and bring Julie up on screen with us and give Julie a brief introduction here. Uh, Julie Roberts is a licensed, uh, I'm going to say ASHA or ASHA, uh, certified speech pathologist. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Sometimes you can say acronyms and sometimes you can't. Uh, speech language pathologist and the founder of the Therapist Neurodiversity Collective, who has been practicing uh, for over 20 years. Uh, you're a frequent presenter um, on overviews of autism and neurodiversity and why social skills training is ableist um, a therapy model. Uh, based on contemporary research and autistic li lived experiences, a uh, frequent blogger who writes articles on disability rights, um, empathetic uh, therapy practices and advocacy efforts, and of course, a passionate and tireless uh, uh, patient, client, student rights act uh, advocate and activist. I was getting both <laughs> the words turned around there. And, and I know that this is work that you are you are doing from your heart to make the world a better place. Um, you know, you and I had a chance to, to talk uh, probably several months back, uh, but really appreciate the the work that you're doing. Uh, and, and I can kind of relate what it's like to not only have a full-time job, but to have a second full-time job, <laughs> as I'm sure the uh, the Therapist Neurodiversity Collective has been for you. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule today to join us. Thank you, Guy. And thank you for such a sweet, nice introduction. I'm really, really happy about that. Um, with that said, I'm just going to start right into the presentation. Sounds good. Okay? I'm going to go ahead and bring up your slide deck here okay. uh, so that we can get you started. And I'll just let you know and the audience that I'll be disappearing and letting you you uh, 
take over with the show here. But if you need me at any time, you say my name and you don't have to say it once or twice. Uh, I will appear and uh, see if I can uh, help out. And of course, uh, you know, we're really excited to have this presentation. So with that, Julie, go ahead and take it away. And I will be in the waiting room if you need me. Great. Okay. So the title of this presentation is Shifting Therapies Toward as an Empathetic and Respectful Neurodiversity Paradigm. The sources for this presentation include, um, for me, my service provision world, I've been an ASHA certified and state licensed speech language pathologist since 1999. Um, sources also include autistic neurodivergent lived experiences, specific mentoring from Karen Rose, the autistic advocate, autistic self-advocacy network, ASAN's work in reframing respectful and empathetic therapy services, and contemporary research. Just to name a few of the researchers whose work I try to really closely follow, Damian Milton, Amy Pearson and Karen Rose, Catherine Compton, Noah Sasson, Rebecca Woods, Gemma Williams, Luke Bearden, and the late Dinah Murray, who we recently lost. This presentation will briefly explore the following questions. Um, the first is, why does therapy need to change? In what ways are the majority of therapists behind in contemporary autism research knowledge? And how do neurodivergence affirming therapies reduce challenging behaviors, including seclusion and restraint? So I have worked in the public school setting as a speech pathologist off and on for 20 years. The following story encompasses a compilation of the lived experiences of real neurodivergent kids I have personally known. So here's the scenario. An educator or an evaluator arrives on campus to conduct a communication assessment for an autistic student. The day and time of the evaluation has been on the school calendar for a couple of weeks. The evaluator arrives to the student's class to pick them up and take them to the therapy room so that the student can be formally evaluated. The student is engaged in an activity or a project or a story or a computer program in their class. The student is directed to stop what they're doing, get up and go with the evaluator to be tested. The teacher or the paraprofessional might say, your mom said you needed to be tested, so you need to go do this. The student protests, they don't wanna stop. They don't wanna leave their class. The student begins to whine and they refuse to leave the classroom. The paraprofessional and teacher instruct the student to get up and leave the classroom right now. The school's expectation for the student is to comply with an adult's instructions. Right now, the kid is clearly upset, distressed, angry in fact, but they finally get up, leave their class, sometimes after being physically prompted or threatened with the loss of a privilege, reward, or similar. And the student continues protesting through the noise, words, facial or body language, or other means in the hallway. A few different things can happen at this point. The kid realizes that they literally have no choice but to comply. They understand that their feelings about what's happening to them are inconsequential to the adults around them, that no matter what they do, they will end up going to the therapy room anyway. So the student is led to the therapy room, but they are not happy about it and they continue to protest in other ways. Do you think this assessment will go well? Or the kid tries to elope, bolts away from the adults and runs. This happens sometimes, it's happened to me personally. 
Actually, more than one might think. Sometimes a student even gets out the door of the school before someone can catch them. But they are finally caught and restrained, except for the ones you read about on the news. And then they are secluded. And the parent is called, and maybe they're suspended for a day or two. Consequences will definitely apply, though, per school the rules. Three, the kid goes into a complete meltdown, either shutting down completely, going to the floor, or putting their head down on the desk, or covering their head with clothes, crying, yelling, or even becoming physically aggressive. If they are standing, they are physically maneuvered into the therapy room or an administrator's office and sat down. Then they are threatened with a loss of privilege, withholding of rewards or breaks or free time or favorite activities unless they calm down. The child either complies and goes to the therapy room or they continue and the consequences begin and the child's behavior escalates to the point where they have to be restrained and then secluded. Meanwhile, the staff now believes that a new functional behavior analysis needs to be done right away to make this kid more compliant. The behavior goals need to be tweaked so the kid complies the first time during a transition, a task command or an order is given. Consider the following about this student. The campus knew the day and the time that the evaluator was arriving. The campus is well aware that the student really struggles with transitions. It's all over the IEP. The student had already had accommodations in their IEP for the use of a daily visual calendar, as well as directions for transition countdown, but neither were used that morning. Did you know that in children in special education make up approximately 71% of those restrained and 66% of kids subject to seclusion in the public school in the United States? It's not the, the kid's fault that we get to this point of restraint and seclusion. So what are we going to do to change this? There's another option. Ask yourself these questions. If we already knew that the evaluator is running, arriving, that the campus was well aware that the kid already struggles with transitions, and they already had accommodations in place, who's at fault here? Who actually needs to change what they're doing? Here's another possible outcome to this story, and this is a true story as well. When I arrived to the classroom to pick up a student for a communication evaluation, the kid was totally engaged in what they were doing in class. The teacher bends over and tells them to get up and come with me because they are going to be tested. The kid first starts saying no, and then when they are physically prompted to get up, they begin whining as they are led outside the room. It's automatically clear to me that no one told them that they were being pulled and tested that day. The paraprofessional follows the kid and me to the evaluation room, inquiring if I need their help managing the kid's behavior. I say, no, thank you. I'll be fine with the student on their own. But the paraprofessional isn't convinced, so they stand outside the testing room, watching through the window on the door to see how I'm going to make this kid comply. The paraprofessional finally walks away after about 10 minutes. But here's the deal. I don't demand compliance from this kid. What I do do is I validate their feelings. I apologize for the lack of warning for the unexpected transition, for the unexpected testing session, the unexpected interruption to their day. 
Then I sit and wait without expectations for compliance, without any expectations for whole body listening, without demanding that they sit down and face me and get to work. I wait. And then after a few minutes of silence, they explore the room and I ask them, hmm, do you want to share some of your favorite activities or hobbies with me? And of course, they grudgingly list a couple of things that they like. And then I ask them to tell me more and I ask curious questions about their passions. And they start slowly talking to more and more as I slowly began putting out the testing materials. And then we keep talking. We just keep talking and connecting. All the while, I listen to understand. And after a few minutes, they start to look interested in what I've put out and they mess around with my therapy materials. And I wait and I let them talk even more about whatever it is they want to talk about. And we finally establish a rapport. And then when I think they might start feeling safe, I ask them if they're ready. And then they give yes. They give their consent to be tested because up until then, nobody had asked them. And they complete this entire evaluation without making eye contact, without doing whole body listening, without the use of any sort of rewards or threats of punishment. And they move their body. Sometimes they're standing while I'm testing them. They might pull a piece of clothing over and off their head. And they sometimes just look completely away from me and the materials altogether while they're listening. They're intrinsically motivated to complete the task at hand. Their comprehension is actually better because they're allowed to use their neurodivergent listening skills instead of focusing on compliance and still bodies and all of that. They complete the entire assessment battery without the use of any external motivation because I validate their feelings, their frustrations, their anxiety, because I apologized and took responsibility for disrupting their needs for a schedule, for transition warnings, for free pre-knowledge of unexpected work. And as we'll learn about this more, because I work with their monotropic interest system and because I treat them humanely, empathetically, and respectfully. Why was this outcome different? If I would have given ultimatums, forced this kid to sit down and comply with my demands without giving them some time to properly transition, it could have very well resulted in this student having a complete meltdown being restrained and secluded. And because I have worked with the student before, I knew that was a definite possibility. And it wouldn't have been the kid's fault because they didn't comply with me. It's actually the adults who are at fault here. Later that day, I asked the paraprofessional whether or not someone had informed this autistic student that they were going to have a major interruption to their day. No, they hadn't. Why aren't accommodations and supports and modifications consistently used if they are on a student's IEP? Here are some of the reasons that I've heard over the years. Teachers and support staff aren't even informed about the accommodations or they don't really know how to implement them or else they forget. If a student primary is the student's primary form of communication is spoken, um, sometimes staff don't buy into the need for a visual schedule report uh, support. The student is in general education classes and they are passing because they're smart, quote, so they don't need to be coddled with supports. Students should be compliant. It's part of the student code of conduct in PBIS schools, which I work in currently. If they are defiant, manipulative, et cetera, 
they should be removed from the classroom. And this is actually in the PBIS curriculum. Students need a behavior intervention plan with rewards and consequences to control their behavior. Students have parents that cause children to be consistently late, tardy, or who don't help or enforce homework routines, behavior, etc. So it's the parents' fault. Here's what I've mostly found. Educators and therapists do not understand neurodivergent sensory trauma and how behavioral approaches and body autonomy violations trigger this. They don't know about contemporary research into sensory trauma, sensory toleration, monotropism, autistic masking and camouflage, and the double empathy problem. Meltdowns and self-harms are often responses to the neurodivergent person's environment. An environment that feels fine to a typical person may feel overwhelming and unsafe to a person with a sensory system that processes things differently. We'll talk more about the research surrounding this later on during this presentation. Just a side note about PBS and, P and, and positive supports, autistic, intellectually disabled, and other neurodivergent students may not be able to demonstrate whole body listening, appropriate participation, or good behavior because sensory differences, neurodivergent listening differences, and need for movement, stemming, all of these reasons are why students have hard times when they're distracted by cognitive demand, a lack of ability, hunger, trauma, and a multitude of other reasons. In the words of Alfie Kahn, quote, by rewarding selectively through PBS and PBIS, inner experiences are dismissed these behavior systems unfairly exclude, isolate, and alienate neurodivergent students. Instead of compliance-based behavior plans for students and residents of institutions, the behavior plan shifts the paradigm from changing the behavior of the individual to having the educators, the providers, and the staff be proactive in changing the way they interact and respond to a student or a resident and to change the environment. If we change the environment, we change the behavior. Here's another example of why changes are necessary in the way that we deliver services. This is a real IEP goal on a neurodivergent student's behavior interventionally plan that I literally recently reviewed. And this is quote, by the next annual IEP meeting, when given an assignment or independent task, student will remain on task, ignore distractions, and work quietly 100% of the time. Their baseline was 85%. This is a setup for failure for all parties. 100% of the time with a baseline of 85%, do you remain on task and ignore distractions 100% of the time? Can neurotypical children remain on task and ignore distractions 100% of the time? Is this realistic for a human being? Now, so why do schools hold autistic kids to such a ridiculous standard? Do autistic children need to be perfect 100% of the time? In a lot of educational systems, neurodivergent children aren't even allowed to be human. As adults, we have bad days. We are tired, irritable, distracted, but nobody takes away our favorite activities, foods, and drinks if we have an off day. Yet we hold neurodivergent children to a higher standard than we even hold ourselves, a higher standard than their peers, 
and we owe it to our students to do better. Here are some words that I've heard educators and therapists use to describe children. Aggressive, bully, a behavior problem, oppositional, confrontational, escapism behavior, avoidant behavior, defensive, defiant, disorganized, disrespectful, disruptive, emotionally disturbed, refusing to work, lazy, impulsive, lack of participation, doesn't try, lack of responsibility, lack of social skills, poor social skills, inappropriate social skills, lack of social awareness, liar, cheater, has a negative attitude, manipulative, attention-seeking, disruptive, stealing, tantrums, out of control, unfocused, unmotivated, brain not in the group, body not in the group, lack of fearing, lacking in theory of mind, not able to express love. I actually wrote, read that in a report. Not able to form relationships, lacks empathy, inattentive, and rude. I've heard these dehumanizing judgments in reports and IEPs that were written by licensed school psychologists, diagnosticians, speech pathologists, and other evaluators. I've personally heard world-renowned therapy and education specialists use some of these expressions to describe neurodivergent kids on podcasts and in trainings. And sadly, I've heard these words used by my own professional peers, both in the workplace and on social media on a daily basis. The dehumanization of neurodivergent children and teens encompass the rationale for behavior models currently used in education and therapy for the justification of behavior intervention plans and compliance-based therapy and for seclusion and restraint. So we're gonna talk about shifting a paradigm from a medical model to a social model of disability. One could read about the medical model and the social model of disability for days, but I'm going to give a quick overview. Most of the information was summarized by um, Autistic Self-Advocacy Network's Executive Director, Julia Bascom. She gave an eloquent keynote at Drexel University in January, 2021. I encourage viewers of this video to Google it and watch it, or at least read the transcript. Both the medical and social model of disability address disability as a problem that needs to be dissolved, but they focus on very different things. In a medical model of disability, the person's disability is a pathology to be solved through medical services. So you would see things like surgery, medicine, therapy, and other medical curative measures. And a medical model, when we are talking about something like autism, the bulk of the current autism research funding goes towards the investigation of basic biology, including hereditary information and DNA studies, and exploring the cause of autism, typically with the goal of preventing autistic people from existing in the future. In contrast, a social model of disability the focus is on identifying the artificial barriers imposed by a society that doesn't generally evaluate accessibility. So we're talking about breakdown barriers to self-advocacy, personal agency, self-determination, inclusion, and equitable access, and increasing supports, including communication supports, home and community-based services, access to education, transportation, housing, employment, and fair wages. 
And if we use our autism research example above, in contrast, funding research to versus the cause of autism in a social model of disability, the research funding would have the bulk of the funding go towards helping finding solutions for autistic people instead of the 2% of research money that is currently spent in these endeavors. The social and medical models of disability are not an either or. If an illness, injury, or disease can be helped with medical treatment, then absolutely a medical model is what's needed. But for neurodevelopmental condition, which can impact every area of life for neurodivergent people, it's not the neurodivergence that needs cured. It's the barriers around them that needs to be removed. So when we ask why therapy needs to change, we need to think of neurodivergent acceptance as a reframing of ideology where neurological differences are recognized and respected as any other human variation rather than being pathologized. It's not to say that you know those who identify as neurodivergent don't find life challenging, they do, but a neurodiversity affirming paradigm doesn't minimize the very real challenges that autistic and other neurodivergent people experience secondary to their neurodivergence, often on a daily basis. But rather than following a medical model to cure or clinical out standards focused on the outcomes of neuronormalization, therapy needs to shift from pathology to one of mental well-being, physical well-being, practicality, and function for our clients. Respectful therapy encompasses presuming competence and actively advocating for the people we serve to have robust support systems, accommodations, equitable inclusion, functional communication on the client's terms, and unrestricted access to AAC. Um, that's augmentative and alternative communication. Neurodiversity-affirming therapists provide therapy for activities of communication, daily living needs, self-advocacy, and self-determined independence. A neurodiversity-affirming practice model means that we understand that neurodivergent people experience a lifetime of trauma in the educational, work, and institutional settings where they live. We don't dehumanize human behavior as a function to be modified or extinguished, but rather an unmet environmental need, a physical need, an emotional need, an unreasonable cognitive demand, or a sensory demand, and often behavior as labeled in the expression of trauma. A neurodiversity affirming model means that the ultimate outcome of therapy is to make life easier for neurodivergent people while supporting them in their personal goals and aspiration. This means that we do not provide therapy to modify or extinguish behaviors, change or extinguish neurodivergent social skills and communicative styles, or force clients to ignore and endure the over or under processing of sensory information through masking pain or discomfort. What this means is we need to look for the reasons behind human behavior with the intent to understand what's happening, address the trauma, and, and do our level best to help. The following is adapted from the Autistic Self-Advocacy Net, uh, Network's first-hand perspectives on behavioral interventions for autistic people, which is what um, the collective and our practice model surrounds. So it's time to leave compliance-based behavioral approaches behind. 
A paradigm shift is needed because too many neurodivergent kids are dealing with chronic anxiety, sensory overwhelm, and trauma, often on a daily basis. Addressing problematic environments and adopting an empathetic approach to challenging behaviors will actually change behaviors. So based on um, ASAN's guidelines, a neurodiversity-firming model looks like promoting positive outcomes based on the neurodivergence person and uh, their, their wants and needs and preventing physical and psychological harm and emotion, emotional abuse. It means protecting autonomy, including body autonomy, personal agency, and placing a high value asking for consent. And this is really important, honoring no. Advocating and promoting inclusion, teaching self-advocacy skills, providing for accessibility. This means recommending all the accommodations, modifications, and support a neurodivergent person needs to thrive, including AAC, and not fading these things when they're working, um, which is kind of the opposite of an IEP goal, right? We write these goals and then we plan to fade them as soon as they're working. Well, they're working because they're in place. So, and then promoting social inclusion with the understanding of autistic and neurodivergent differences in social skills. And instead of changing them, accepting these differences as a form of neurodiversity, of diversity. And last, being trauma sensitive, because people with disabilities can encounter many traumas throughout their lifespan. Living in a world that feels hostile or frustrating causes psychological responses that are difficult to contend with. People with developmental disabilities are all also more likely to be emotionally, sexually, and physically abused. So providing trauma-sensitive therapy means it goes back to, con to consent. And last of all, it also means promoting cultural competency. Neurodivergent people come from all racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds, middle, upper, middle and upper class white men and boys are more likely to receive a diagnosis of, say, autism than women, racial and ethnic minorities or low income people because of differential access to health care and comprehensive disability services. Neurodivergent people come from a different racial, ethnic and low income groups are often missed in diagnosis and they have behavioral issues attributed to a moral view rather than a view of disability. For example, a black child who's having a meltdown in class might be considered a bad kid, while a white child would be more likely to receive services reflecting their needs. Autism research conducted with autistic people, positioning those lived experience as partners in research is increasingly becoming the norm. And rather than focusing on curative, or preventative outcomes, the research is focused on improving the lives of autistic people, which aligns with the neurodiversity affirming model of social disability. So research into areas like sensory input, monotropism, the double empathy problem and autistic masking and camouflage are helping to shed light on the autistic and neurodivergent lived experiences. When therapists understand that these are neurological differences, examples of normal diversity in human brains, the focus of our practice naturally shifts to education, especially in regard to divergent lived experiences, diversity in recommending accommodations and modifications. And so I'm gonna briefly go into the current research 
that shapes the collective's practices. Sensory. The root causes of meltdown are sensory processing difficulties. Autistic people, people with ADHD, Down syndrome, PTSD, cerebral palsy, fetal alcohol syndrome, and several other conditions often experience sensory integrations problems. The focus needs to be on the prevention of the sensory overload and subsequent meltdown. An empathetic way to address behaviors associated with sensory overload that ends in meltdowns or worse is to head them off in the first place, and the research backs this up. Did you know that recent research demonstrates that some autistic children cannot learn to self-regulate when overwhelmed with sensory input? The research determined that they should be supported with reduced exposure and provided with support such as noise-canceling headphones to avoid the sensory overload altogether, rather than physically having to tolerate the sensory exposure. Additionally, many autistic adults report that they never learn to tolerate or extinguish their sensory overwhelm. I'm gonna be very direct here. Sensory toleration goals are cruel and abusive. Making a neurodivergent sensory system tolerate something that's frankly intolerable just for the sake of compliance is cruel. I'm gonna give you an example. A very young student that I had had meltdowns during choral reading. The LSSP wanted to write a tolerance goal to make the student participate. But here's the thing. The kid was learning to read. In fact, they were ahead of most of the class in this respect. So would a behavioral goal for tolerating choral reading without a meltdown actually help this little one or hurt them? The research re re that I just shared points to the latter. I wrote recommendations for noise canceling headphones and the problem after a lot of debate with my peers was solved. So again, a social model of disability rather than cure by making a neurodivergent child tolerate something that's intolerable leading to meltdowns and trauma, the kid gets an accommodation and remains in the class with their peers. The multi-sensory environment of most schools present a problem for students with sensory processing differences. In particular, Rebecca Wood in 2018 emphasized that noise could be a highly exclusionary factor for some students. When sensory differences are not well accommodated, this can have a negative impact on pupil well-being, emotional regulation, attention and concentration and attainment. In a recent study, McLennan in 2020 found that sensory hyperactivity and hypoactivity may be implicated in specific anxiety symptomology. It's really important then that th therapists advocate for sensorially comfortable environments for their clients rather than writing these tolerance goals. Uh, Rebecca Wood in 2019 made recommendations for sensory accommodations, including a variety of learning spaces like quiet rooms, pods, sensory rooms, space to run around, as well as space to be quiet reduction of visual clutter, less busy displays, and incorporating sensory strengths to support self-regulation, well-being, and participation in the curriculum. So a lot of providers write tolerance goals, and these look like decreasing outbursts or undesirable actions when uh, someone's experiencing sensory overload, 
tolerating unpleasant stimulus like a fire drill, putting their hands in gooey substances, being physically touched. Their body needs to stay in a group during things like circle time, tolerate clothing, texture, food textures, and demonstrate decreased auditory defensiveness by decreasing their ear covering. These kinds of goals are causing trauma to neurodivergent children. These, these uh, behaviors that we're seeing are really self-advocacy attempts and communication of trauma. The conclusion of this study was that many autistic children have hypersensitivities to sound resulting in high levels of sympathetic nervous system reactivity, which is associated with problem behaviors the, the findings of the study suggest that the use of noise attending headphones for autistic individuals may reduce sympathetic activation. Well, we already knew this. I mean, I, it's, it's great that there's a study, but we've been using noise canceling headphones for years with students with great success. So what, what this is showing is that the research is finally catching up with the lived experiences of autistic and neurodivergent people. Research indicates that autistic children with severe impairment, especially those with limited or no spoken language, will use challenging behavior as a form of expression. And even if the behavior is ignored, the child will still engage in self-injurious behavior in, in order to try to communicate. Studies also show that a physiological response resulting in pain from non-suicidal self-injury can be an attempt to heal pain especially in people who have insufficient stress responses, which neurodivergent people do. These two reasons for self-injurious behaviors, a lack of access to functional communication and poor stress response, both demonstrate a cry for help. It's a trauma response. So why do we treat neurodivergent people who engage in self-injurious behavior differently? For the average person engaging in these behaviors, we have sympathy and we seek to understand their trauma and reduce their emotional and physical pain. But with neurodivergent kids and autistic kids, especially if they're non-speaking or they're intellectually disabled, we do things like miss the child in the face with water or take away desired objects, withhold attention, ignore the child, or in the case of the Judge Rottenberg Center, painfully, repeatedly torture the person with electric shocks in the name of treatment. I don't understand why we treat most humans with self-injurious behavior humanely, but dehumanize the neurodivergent person, the intellectually disabled person, the person who lacks access to functional communication. It's, it's, it's barbaric. There are better ways than compliance-based treatments, I refuse to call it therapy, to help someone who's crying out for more help. The research is demonstrating more and more if we teach functional communication and adopt, adapt environments, challenging or self-injurious behaviors are re significantly reduced and sometimes eliminated. This is just a brief overview of some of the important research topics that anyone who loves a neurodivergent person or who works with a neurodivergent person in any capacity should not only be aware of, but at least know the basics so that you can not only be more empathetic about the lived experiences, but stop having not only unrealistic expectations for demands placed on them, 
but know that forcing the issue may result in a reaction that is less than pleasant for both you and for them. The first one is monotropism. And um, in my experience, most of my professional peers have not ever even heard of this term before. Monotropism is the tendency for autistic people's interests to pull them in more strongly than most people. It rests on a model of the mind as an interest system. The theory of monotropism was introduced by Diane Mur or Dinah Murray, Mike Lesser, and Wynne Lawson in 2005 and is, within the autistic community, the dominant theoretical approach towards understanding autism. Monotropism theory proposes that the, the degree of attention allocation in humans is normally distributed and largely genetically determined, with some people possessing a greater tendency towards multiple focused attention, which they deemed polytropism, and others a tendency more narrow focused attention, which is monotropism. In the therapy world, these are uh, called special interest uh, fixations and other terms. But from this standpoint, it's just a different way of att attending and focusing. Autistic people are often more at the far end of the distribution with a highly narrow attention to, uh, topic, or I mean a tunnel. When polytropic minds entertain multiple interests, each moderately aroused, the monotropic mind will maintain only a few simultaneous interests, each one highly aroused and intensely focused upon. So because autistic people have a more narrow attention tunnel than one would find in neurotypicals, they are using more processing resources, which makes it much harder to deal with shifting focus outside the current attention tunnel. So when you're thinking about that kid in the story that I just talked about, that was what was happening. The kid had a monotropic interest system, right? They're autistic and they're totally engaged in what they're doing. And they had no transition warning. We abruptly just tell them, hey, get up, move. You're going to go do this. It's, it's really hard for those kind of kids. Monotropic interest systems mean that when someone is in the moment, distractions are not an option, and it's exhausting when they have to constantly shift from one activity or demand to another. It means when autistic people are truly engaged in something, it's super hard to shift gears, especially when it happens to be their passion, and engaging in their passion is how they learn best. So means that understanding transitions, especially unexpected transitions, are really hard. The accommodations and supports need to be in place on bad days and on good. It also means neurotypical social skill training that shame monologuing and demands for neurotypical turn-taking and answering and answering social questions on someone else's terms or behavior treatments that use gatekeeping, access to an emergent kid's passions, as a way to manipulate their behavior is uninformed at best and at worst, cruel and insensitive. So what do we do with kids and um, young people that have monotropic interest systems in the educational settings? We work with their interests and passions. We avoid pathologizing their, their focused interest. We understand that it's really, really hard and anxiety producing and frustrating for a monotropic brain to shift focus. And when we work with them, 
we become part of that attentional tunnel and we engage in their interest and let them lead the activity. And most of all, we help to maintain a sense of safety, stability, and routine with accommodations and supports for things like transitions. Now we're going to talk about the double empathy problem, which is the second thing that has really shifted my practices and um, helped form the basis of how the collective practices. The theory of the double empathy problem suggests that when people with very different experiences of the world interact with one another, they will struggle to empathize with each other. The double empathy period or problem is a breakdown in reciprocity and mutual understanding that can happen between people with very differing ways of the experience, experiencing the world. So this means that those with similar experiences are more likely to form connections and a level of understanding makes sense. What it looks like is because autistic people and neurotypical people have different lived experiences, autistic people might find it hard to form connections with people who are not autistic and easier and more comfortable to form connections with autistic people. In contrast with that, neurotypical people might find it hard to connect with autistic people and easier and more comfortable to form connections with neurotypical people. The double empathy problem was first proposed by autistic researcher, Dr. Damian Milton, University of Kent in 2012. Other researchers I follow whose work continues to explore the double empathy problem include Catherine Compton, Noah Sasson, and Brett Heisman. The double empathy problem challenges the myth that autistic people have impaired theory of mind, which is still being written in reports today. Um, the ability to infer the intention or feelings of others, but rather that breakdowns in communications are often a result of shared misunderstanding between non-autistic people and autistic people. According to the double empathy problem, empathy is a two-way street. So it depends on a person's way of doing things and their expectations from previous social experiences. Uh, which, of course, can be very different for autistic and non-autistic people. Research surrounding the double empathy problem also discovered that the quality of interactions between two autistic people is just as strong as the reactions between two people who are not autistic. This validates what most people would say their lived experience is. Um, so... When autistic people socialize with other autistic people, they become less concerned with following neurotypical social norms, such as conventional reciprocity, and they converse in more monotropic forms of communication. Currently in the therapy world, autistic pr perspectives are not heard or validated, and autistic behavior is misunderstood and pathologized. The focus of autism therapy is basically teaching autistic individuals non-autistic perspectives and then making them learn and implement non-autistic social communication styles. A better solution, a more empathetic solution than making autistic people conform is to teach both autistic and non-autistic people the perspective of each other's neurotype and to advocate for acceptance of neurodiversal social differences as an example of diversity in social intelligence rather than a pathology. So continuing to demand that autistic people conform to neurotypical social skills through masking and camouflage leads to harm, as we'll see next. 
Autistic masking and camouflaging may be explicitly learned or implicitly developed through things like social skills training or sensory tolerance, exposure therapy. And the, the goal of those things is to minimize the appearance of autistic characteristics during a social exchange. Autistic people may mask autism for a variety of reasons, such as to feel safe and avoid being stigmatized or ostracized um, so they aren't mistreated or bullied. Um, they mask to increase acceptance by peers, instructors, and managers in their work and, and school settings or their um, social lives. They may mask to attract a romantic partner or in an attempt to make friends. And finally, to fit into a group or to feel a sense of belonging. Masking autism looks like forcing yourself to make eye contact, even if it's uncomfortable, imitating smiles and other facial expressions, mimicking gestures, developing a repertoire of rehearsed responses, um, maybe to questions or even scripting conversations, Minimizing or hiding altogether the things you're really interested in or hiding your personal hobbies and interests that others find uh, boring or unusual. Um, asking about questions about things you have no interest in and then pretending to be polite. Responding politely to every person who initiates a greeting or initiates a conversation with you. Pushing through intense sensory discomfort and forcing yourself to hide the pain. And, and also like hiding your stimming or trading a not a preferred stimming for one that's less obvious. This looks like therapy goals for tolerating and extinguishing sensory processing, distress or overwhelm, immediate compliance in a transition, despite being in a monotropic flow state and learning, practicing and performing neurotypical social skills while at the same time hiding autistic social communication traits and neurodivergent listening styles like eye contact, brain and body in the group, a hyper-awareness of your social performance, making sure that you're turn-taking instead of monologuing, asking and answering questions that you might not have any interest in and commenting on demand. So as you might expect, camouflaging takes a lot of effort. It's exhausting both mentally and physically, and it's not reasonable or even realistic to hide these authentic parts of yourself all the time. Many autistic people say that if they have spent the whole day of camouflaging at school or work, they have to come home, take some time away from others and rest. And a lot of times we see kids coming home and having meltdowns after holding it together all day. So prolonged masking isn't sustainable, even if an autistic person has gone through social skills training and the research backs this up. This is a really important study that I like to um, cite all the time because it, it demonstrates that negative impressions of autistic people engaging in real world social behavior remain stable across multiple thin sliced judgments. They found that this occurs not only when audio or visual information was present or occurs only when audio or visual information was present and not just when a transcript of the speech was content. So basically it's not what they said, but it's how they said it. So it shows that the autistic social presentation style rather than the social speech content is what drives negative impressions. What's really interested is they found that even after kids had had 
social skills training, the perceptions of people towards their social skills didn't change. So if they're taking all these social skills classes and they still look autistic and they're having to mask their autism, what happens? This perpetuates conditional acceptance. I like you as long as you don't look autistic. I recently heard the CEO of a social skills training company say, if you look neurotypical, we are going to judge you more harshly. There's no forgiveness factor. This is a message being that autistic people had better learn to look less autistic or they are unacceptable. But the problem here is there's no cure for autism. So it's no wonder that there's a much higher rate of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation among the autistic population. They are routinely ostracized, repeatedly informed. If they're not good enough, they are damaged and deficient. The essence of who they are, their neurodivergence is offensive. And what's worse is professionals perpetuate the belief that an autistic can just work hard enough to hide their autism, then everything will be fine. They'll make friends and they'll be successful in social environments. But masking doesn't work because it's impossible to keep it up all day long. Social skills training doesn't work. Autistic lived experiences support this. And tolerating sensory overwhelm doesn't work. Masking your discomfort. Research and neurodivergent learned experiences support this. If autistic people, autistic adults have a difficult time doing this, imagine if you're in a child in a, in a classroom. So how do neurodivergence affirming, uh, how do neurodivergence affirming therapies reduce challenging behaviors, including seclusion and restraint? If we understand that behavior is often a trauma response, a cry for help, or a form of self-advocacy, we need to empathize, empathize with this and then address the environment where we can change lives. Changing the environment and addressing the sensory environment also means being trauma sensitive, promoting positive outcomes based on the goals of neurodivergent people, which more often than not doesn't look like your typical therapy goals. And sometimes no therapy is the answer. It means rejecting behavioral compliance goals, behavior treatment approaches, use of punishment and reward to manipulate or extinguish behavior. It means proactively preventing neurodivergent people <clears throat> from physical and psychological harm and emotional abuse. It means protecting autonomy, including body autonomy, personal agency, and placing a very high value in continually asking for consent and honoring no. It means promoting equitable inclusion and providing access and teaching functional communication so that neurodivergent people have other ways to communicate other than their behavior. Um, and it also means um, the speaking neurodivergent person has access to AAC along with the non-speaking person because sometimes it's very difficult to use spoken language when one is in sensory overload or trauma. It means promoting social including, inclusion with the understanding of autistic and neurodivergent differences and promoting accessibility. That means all the accommodations, modifications, and support someone needs to thrive in their environment. And that is it. 
Wow. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take your screen off here. Um, Julia, that was amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing um, presentation. And, um, you know, one of the thoughts that, that occurred to me as I was listening to you is, uh, you know, I just, I, you know, not that this is realistic, but I have a desire to go buy a bus and take a tour around the U.S. and bring you uh, to talk to every school across the country. <laughs> I mean, this this message that you're, you're you know, sharing here um, is is so important. And I mean, just listening to everything that you you've had, uh, I see a lot of comments coming in about, you know, this resonating with people uh, and, and their experiences. But um wow, we've got so much progress to make. Uh, and uh, I'm sure your journey has been uh, challenging at times as well. Um, but, you know, this this presentation is one that I hope that everyone that's watching will share with others um, and that we can get this, um, you know, out to, to schools and, and individuals that are therapists and others that would... Um, you know, could benefit from this. It, it, it's an amazing presentation. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, I want to let the audience know that's watching live. Uh, and I just will, will quickly show you, we, we've gotten some really nice comments here from people, um, you know, about everything. But if you're watching live and you have a question or you have a comment, uh, feel free to go ahead and put that in the chat now. Uh, and we'll take some questions from everyone. Um, but in the interim, uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions if you don't mind. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I was thinking about the state of the, <laughs> the state of the world, the state of, uh, you know, the state of therapy, education, medical model versus social model, kind of where people are. And, you know, um, despite the fact that I think so much of, of what you're saying um, resonates heavily with me and, and so many uh, others that are out there. Um, we know what's happening today um, are not the right things. We know that, um, you know, children are being recommended for treatments and therapy options that not only are, are not necessarily helpful, but can be quite harmful. Um, we know that a lot of what's taught in um, e even our, our secondary education programs is still based on a lot of um, um, theories and ideas that that I think we both would have a lot of issue with. I think a lot of the classical behaviorism that's happening, a lot of the idea about um, you know um, you know <laughs> I may use the word modifying behavior, but but really it's 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 more than that. Um, it's ma being manipulative, and and you know you you quoted some things from Alfie Cohen that that resonate with me, and I, I always think about you know, kind of his view on rewards and consequences. So this is a really long question, but but I'm getting to the <laughs> point of, given the state of things today, how do we continue to make this change? Because there are so many people out there now that are pushing people in the wrong direction that, that and, and you know, I want to, I want to, um, I want to believe that people often get involved in, in professions uh, related to, to therapy and education because they wanna help people, they, they wanna help kids. Um, certainly people that are um, you know, interested in working with you know, autistic individuals or, or you know, individuals um, that, that need um, you know, different accommodations and support may, may have very you know, um, good reasons behind it, but, but 
when so many of the things being taught, whether in secondary education or otherwise, are the wrong approaches, how do we continue to make that shift? Uh, I mean, I've seen the movement that you're, um, you know, with the, the the collective. I mean, it's fantastic. It's fantastic to see the momentum behind people looking to support, you know, a neurodiversity, you know, kind of affirming practices. But how do we continue to make that shift? Sorry for the long question, but it's just that idea that, wow, this is it, but there's so much out there that's happening wrong. What are your thoughts? Um, so as a movement, right, it's a human rights movement. Right. We can all advocate for these changes, you know, and, and there are so many groups and um, self-advocacy organizations that are doing this. But as a as a therapist, and this is we get to ask this question all the time. We have a we have a group with 6,600 therapists in it. And they ask that, what, what can I do to change? You can change with one kid at a time, mm -hmm. one IEP at a time. So, you know, I work in PBIS schools. These kids are getting ABA therapy. They're being punished for having meltdowns, right? But if you can take their IEP and you can have one difference in one kid's life, and if you can educate parents, one of, one of the things I start with um, when I you know, I'm part of a multidisciplinary team and we diagnose autism. You know, this kid is autistic. Now they get these services. The very first thing I do is I have a very long meeting with the parents or the caregiver. I explain the neurodiversity movement and I bombard them with probably more information than they would ever want to know. I give them the research because, you know, we want to be um, evidence-based practice, right? Well, the research that's coming out in the last 10 years is definitely supporting what neurodivergent people already knew. I mean, these were their lived experiences and we've got this research saying, mm -hmm. oh yeah, you're right. You, you, what you're experiencing is real. Well, they're, they're saying, of course it was real, but um, right. so if you take these IEPs and you write respectful goals and you only write goals that really they need, you don't need to tell a kid they need to turn take like a ping pong ball because their neurotypical friends are doing it. We also need to teach the peers, the teachers, the parents, how neurodivergent people communicate and why their lived experiences, their lived sensory experiences, their lived social experiences are equally valid and their perspectives are equally valid to the neurotypical perspective. And that we should stop pathologizing them and it's acceptance, right? It's a human right acceptance mm -hmm. movement. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, I hear you and you know, the, the, what resonates with me about kind of your story about the, you know, helping, helping a child, helping a school um, you know, you're right. I mean, I've always looked at issues like restraint seclusion as it, there's there's a individual issue, there's a local issue, there's a state issue, there's a federal issue. Mm -hmm. It seems overwhelming when you look at it in the the big picture, but at the same time, um, small steps can make a big difference. And I, I always think about that uh, that story about the uh, sea stars that washed up on the beach, and you know, kids in there throwing them back yeah. in the water, and somebody comes up and says, "You'll never save them all," and he's like, "Well, you know, it made a big difference to that one," and and certainly. I agree with you. I think that's important. Anywhere we can, anywhere we can affect change is a positive thing. Um, and, and you know, I'm very um, happy to see organizations like you know the Autistic Self Advocacy Network and and others that are um, 
you know, really, I think making positive, um, you know, changes that are, that are, um, providing a voice because, you know, too, for too long, we've had, uh, you know, autism organizations that weren't represented by actually autistic individuals. Still have uh, them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We still have them and they are, uh, you know, some of the best funded groups mm -hmm. out there. Um, but, you know, to see the progress that, that, you know, groups like ASON have made is, is really, um, you know, really great to see, but there's so much progress to be made there. You know, you talked about evidence-based practices and, and certainly, um, you know, I, I'll say that, um, you know, as someone with a science background, evidence-based um, resonates with me, but having seen the evidence that is sometimes used as the basis for evidence-based, uh, it's an entirely different thing. And I think, you know, um, my, in my own journey, and I, I want to get to kind of yours as well, but I know that I've continued to grow as I've been exposed to other things. And, you know, for me, um, you know, we never, we never did ABA, but it wasn't because I was really well educated about it at the time that it was, it was mentioned. It was really uh, because at that point that it was mentioned, they said, well, he's, your son's probably too old. So we never did it. Um, and, but, you know, I know that we were kind of led to believe that that was the gold standard for uh, helping an autistic individual where in fact, uh, you know, when I began to hear the voices of autistic individuals that um, had experienced ABA and sharing their stories, um, you know, the perspective changed considerably. And I mean, you know, now um, I, I, I can't think of an evidence-based practice that can be considered evidence-based without actually having heard the voices of the people that have been through it. Well, and that's the key thing, Guy, there's so many autistic researchers right now that are either producing research in co-production or they are researching on their own, it, the research, especially in the last five years, is just mind-blowing. Mm. I mean, I started to shift a few years ago, and, and it, it's like the research is ca catching up with what I had learned from people like Karen Rose and Julia Bascom and mm -hmm. the other people that have graciously mentored me you know, with my practices. And now to have the research back it up, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. And, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen in schools. Schools are just so behind mm -hmm. in, in sh making shifts, but I hope at least if not in my lifetime, you know, that my son's lifetime, that, that we change to become more empathetic in the way that we deal with neurodivergence. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and you said a couple of interesting things in that vein as well, you know, in terms of being behind, you know, I even look at kind of the, um, you know, what we know today about the brain, about neuroscience, about trauma, and yet yeah. our schools are lacking decade, lagging decades behind on much of this research. Um, I've always felt that there's a huge intersection between trauma and, and disability. And in fact, um, you know, very often uh, individuals, you know, with disabilities are being traumatized uh, in the, um, you know, the places where they should be being supported. And, you know, what we know about trauma, of course, is the more you're traumatized, the more you're going to be hypervigilant, the more you're going to have mm -hmm. uh, stress reactions. So, you know, we, we build these systems that get kids restrained and secluded over and over again, or, you know, lead to those kind of issues. It, it's really difficult to see. Well, and the myths that still perpetuate autism, like autistic people don't have empathy, autistic people lack, mm -hmm. you know, theory mm -hmm. of mind. I, right. I literally heard a, a provider say that in a meeting last week, this kid didn't have any empathy. And his teacher spoke up and said, 
Well, actually they do. And here's an example. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But we need to, as therapy providers, really keep up with contemporary research and, and not listen and perpetuate the myths that we learned 20 years ago in grad school. Mm-hmm. You know? How did, you know, you, so I think about your journey and I think about uh, the journey that a parent might have or, or whoever might have, uh, you know, autistic individual, think about the journeys. And, um, you know, I, I'm always a big believer in when we know better, we do better, right? Um, but yeah. but we've got to proactively sometimes get that knowledge to, to know better. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of resistance. To, for, there's a lot of resistance for systems to change. So as a as a therapist going into schools where you're beginning to see better ways of supporting children. And, you know, I, I, I think about the stories you shared in the beginning about, you know, here's scenario one and here's what happened. Here's scenario two. Um, I saw a lot of scenario ones. And, um, you know, I think about what you were doing there. And of course, I'm just, you know, madly off screen, nodding <laughs> my head as I think probably other people were as well. Um, but I'm sure that you ran into people that were resistant, didn't buy in. I mean, we find that educators sometimes that raise concerns about restraint seclusion, you know what they do to them? They take them into a room with a bunch of other people to convince them that they're wrong. So how, what did you run into kind of in the, the field of education and in your own work in terms of people that um, were not receptive and, and how did you get through some of that? So um, I will say in the social media world, when I started the collective um, and I, I started it with a few friends, we just started talking about changing our practices. And one day I just put a Facebook page up and for a while we were the ridicule. I mean, mm. of ASHA, of people who said we were practicing pseudoscience, that we were just perpetuating this nonsense of providing therapy. It it was really um, humiliating at times, you know, Mm -hmm. in the schools, I still run into it on a daily basis. Um, Every staffing, every ARD meeting, you know, because our schools are so entrenched in behaviorism, Um, I I will just share with the audience that um, this summer I was diagnosed, late diagnosed as autistic. Um, And it was really, it was life changing in the fact that it confirmed the way I have interacted socially and um, been treated socially my entire life, including my adult life. I've, I've, I mean, I think I shared this in a blog. I've actually taken social skills training and guess what? <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly intelligent person. I followed those steps. And, you know, when I was diagnosed this summer, the, the person that diagnosed me it wrote in the report, she may not even realize her autistic mannerisms because she's been masking so long and hiding it. She was very apparent to other people. And I went, ah, that's mm-hmm. it. But at the and so I got mad about it. Like I have been treated so unfairly, but at the same time, it made me just want to advocate all the more for the Mm -hmm. kids that are coming after me, for the kids that have been told their whole life, your social skills are not good enough. You are not good enough. If you would just do ABC to fit in, then you would be fine. And so it's basically all your fault rather than how do we accept people for who they are? Right. Right. Yeah. I I mean, I think about my own experiences with with my son and, uh, you know, I think about some of the things I've heard in IEP meetings and 
um, you know, uh, in, in, in days gone by. But I mean, things like, you know, as, as I was advocating to say, uh, you know, he, he needs to be in a small group environment in a setting like, um, you know, uh, PE that's very difficult from him for a sensory standpoint. And you get comments like, well, how's he ever going to live in life and go to the grocery store? He needs to toughen up. Right, 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 yeah. right, right. Right. Exactly. Well, listen, there's a number of comments and questions here and I, I promise to get to them, but I, I was just getting so excited about having this conversation <laughs> with you that I need to look back and, and see where I am here. Um, so I'm going to bring up a couple comments and, and we've got a couple questions here as well. Um, uh, somebody, let's say Joan said, thank you. I have a daycare with a couple of kids, um, you know, uh, with autism and it's good to know I'm trying to do the right thing with them. Um, so that's, that's always great. Uh, Mary Anna said, this resonates so deeply. Thank you, Julie. Uh, another thank you here from Michelle. Uh, thank you, because there's no reason why people with disabilities experience should be non-consequential. Absolutely. Um, let's see, I've got another one here from Catherine. How can, autistic, how can an autistic adult without support staff uh, create transitions between activities? Therapists need them to switch tasks when a timer rings and they find this distressing. So what, what I do with autistic kids, because the monotropic interest system is just, it's driven, right? It's very hard to shift gears. I use a visual schedule. I implement visual schedules in their classroom. It needs to be used consistently, whether they are speaking or non-speaking, whether they are having a great day, whether they're having a bad day. And then we, get, we use a warning system 20 minutes before you know, if we, if you have that time frame, five minutes before, and then a couple of minutes before, you know, we're getting ready to shift, sweetie, here's blah, 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 be prepared. And the biggest things are for unexpected when the kid's being pulled from the group, right? They're being mm -hmm. pulled out of their class, or there's an assembly that day, or they're going home for the doctor at 11 o'clock after being in a school a couple day, a couple minutes, or in my case, all the time they're being tested and nobody's told them. And all of a sudden they not only getting pulled out of the classroom, but they have this huge demand. Cause when you hear test, right, you, you, you kind of go into fight, fight or flee, freeze. Mm -hmm. And, and so they're thinking why, you know, I would be mad if I'm in the middle of a meeting or something and somebody literally yanks me out and says, you need to go do X, Y, Z. It's, it's rude. Right, it's, right. it's inconsiderate. Right. So. Yeah. Well, I, I loved in your story when you were talking about that and you were talking about, you know, how you, you apologize to the kid and you, you, you know, let some time go to kind of build a relationship. And, and all that kept going through my head was, you know, there's this tendency to treat kids like they're not humans. And, and I mean, you know, I mean, shouldn't it be self-evident that we should have Shouldn't we be modeling the courtesy that we hope that a kid would one day model? I mean, you know, just the fact that you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I realize this might be difficult for you. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I know you weren't expecting this or, you know, all, all of that that you were doing. It's just it's respectful. It's treating somebody like another human being. Right. And the same with, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to take away X, Y, Z. If you're right. having a bad day or an off day, it'd be like, you know, me having a really horrible day. And then going home and, you know, my partner says, I'm sorry for you. You had a bad day. No, no glass of wine with dinner. That's it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, what makes it even worse is part of that whole process is, is finding out, you know, what motivates a kid and what they like and what they enjoy. And then you use that to hold it over their head to take away from them, to manipulate them. And of course, you know, I think as, as Alfie says, you know, it's like, what do you get out of, 
uh, reward and consequence. You get short-term compliance, if anything. It's not intrinsic motivation. It's mm -hmm. not. And, and I love that you mentioned that when you were talking about, you know, you know, when, when the child was ready to talk to me, it was, it was on their own accord. It was intrinsic. So I think that's important. Um, had a, a question here from Alex. Will this be recorded and shareable? Absolutely. Um, it will be recorded. It's available on YouTube, Facebook, and as an audio podcast. And please, please share it widely. Um, you know, we want a lot of people to, to see this and to hear the message. So let me get back to some of the other comments here. Um, Violet said, I love what you're saying, Julie. Agree, human rights issue. Absolutely. Stop blaming and shaming and support students who experience the world in a different way. Mm. Yep. Uh, let's see. Uh, somebody asked if they are able, let's see, to keep this video. And absolutely, it is available, as I said a minute ago, on YouTube and Facebook. If you need anything, just, you know, let me know. Um, and, and please do. Yeah, please do, you know, review it again. And if, uh, Juliet, I don't know if you're willing to share any of the presentation materials, if that's helpful to anybody, but we can make those available if, if you're willing to do that. So basically everything I said in this presentation is on the website. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, great. Great. We have all kinds of free downloads for educational and, you know, this is not my job. I have a full-time job. This is a human rights movement to me. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and uh, I am going to try to pull up that link here in a second, but okay. if I multitask uh, too much here, I'm going to get myself lost. So <laughs> bear yeah. with me. Um, so I'll try to get that link up as well. All right. Um, somebody asked here and uh, uh, Monica said, um, is there a database of schools or school districts that have dropped the behavioral approach and adopted the neurodivergent affirming approach? Oh man, if there were, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. I, I have never, I, almost every school that I've ever worked in has been a PBIS school. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had the same thought and I was hopeful that maybe you might know something that <laughs> no. I don't. Uh, and, and, you know, I think honestly right now, um, you know, it, it's probably by far the exception. Um, and I think should you find people that are doing great things uh, and, you know, there have been schools that we have highlighted that, that are doing things that I think are, are broadly uh, heading in a far better direction. But um, yeah, I don't know of any list, but I'll tell you what, that would be a great thing. If you're aware of schools or anyone's aware of schools, please reach out to us. I mean, I, you know, th that could certainly be something to, uh, to have aspirations about knowing schools that are doing positive practices. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let's see. Um, could you also touch up on the intersectionality of empathetic therapies you've discussed and being culturally aware, please? Yes. So it, it is absolutely the responsibility of a therapist and an educator to become culturally aware. Um, I will tell you that I, most of my school career, I've worked in inner city districts. And I will tell you that in my personal experience, black kids, kids of color, um, biracial kids, more often than not receive the label of emotionally disturbed, yep. oppositionally defiant rather than autistic or ADHD. And it's, it's like a judgment call on their behavior rather than a neurological difference, which is what they're really exhibiting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so as therapists, we need to check our bias on a daily basis. We need to keep up with research that's going, there's, there's a ton of research out there in the last couple of years on intersectionality and autism and, and therapists need to be abreast of that, but also just check your own personal bias 
when you're working with kids. And I mean, I hate to say it, we all have personal bias, no matter how much we really try not to, and, and we work on that and work on that, but we do have inherent biases and we need to check them on a daily basis and think about that child that we're working with and not see them as, you know, a problem, but a human being with needs and how can we find the way to meet that person's needs and, and help alleviate their trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great, great point. And of course, you know, we see it in looking at the data, the the disproportionality that exists. You know, you mentioned the restraint and seclusion, you know, data, and you yeah. know, we find that you know individuals with disabilities are far more likely to be restrained and secluded, but also black, black and brown children, um, you know, children with trauma history, very young children. And of course, that carries over to that school to prison pipeline, um, and and we see a lot of the outcomes of, of people that are not having their needs appropriately met. We've got a few more questions. You mind taking a couple more minutes? I'm good. Okay, great. Um, I, I know I, I, I didn't want to keep you too long. Um, so a couple more comments to go through. Uh, Catherine said, who needs to go to the grocery store these days uh, if they don't want to? Delivery save lives during the pandemic and should be a tool for neurodivergent people who just can't um, with the stores. And, and, and you know, isn't that really, uh, that's a great point. And isn't that really what we're trying to say here is having the world that better accommodates all people. And, you know, not everybody has to have the same experience. No, they don't. You know, uh, my friend Karen Rose, the autistic advocate, one thing he said early on when we first started getting to know each other, he was talking about his kids and he said he and his wife, Michelle, always have an option for an out. If something's too overwhelming, mm -hmm. if something's not working, they have a they have a, a game plan, right? How are we going to address this? And they, they're proactive rather than reactive. And so, yeah, I mean, why does a kid need to go to a grocery store? I have, I very rarely go to the grocery store since COVID, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm with you. Uh, Debbie says, thank you. My son has been in isolation three times oh. this year and we're 100% against it. I'm afraid to send him to school. Uh, Debbie, I'm sorry to hear that's happening, um, you know, and if there's anything you that we can do to help you out, don't hesitate to reach out, um, you know kids should not be being put in isolation. Um, you know, um, well, I think at all, I don't think we should ever be secluding children. Um, mm -hmm. you know, um, but again, you know, we, we feel for you and if there's anything we can do, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, Sandra said, this has been amazing. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, there's nobody to make a visual schedule or give warnings though. This is an adult who lives alone. So this was a follow-up of, of that earlier, um, question we had about, um, transitions. I, I don't think I'm, so it's the, the adults having to make transitions on their own. Uh, I'm just I'm going not, back to the original question. How yeah. can an autistic adult without supports, without support staff create transitions between activities? Uh, therapist needs them to switch task to a, uh, when a timer rings. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I have enough detail that, you know, we have yeah. enough details for you to I, I don't, but I would yeah. encourage autistic adults to get into actually autistic adult support groups. I know there's several on Facebook, but there's also on Reddit and other, um, I forgot what the other one is, Discord, I think has some, <laughs> um, and problem solve with other autistic adults. I, mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm, that's really mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Uh, another comment here from Carolyn. This is legitimately a discussion I recently had with one of my clients, inter interdisciplinary care teams. There's really no reason to force our kids who are overstimulated by the grocery store to go. I advocated hard, but at the end of the day, the mom decided to go with ABA writing a goal for tolerating the store because we all have to do things we don't want to do. Mm. Uh, Caroline, she is a, she's a fantastic therapist. I know who she is. She's she's an advocate for her kids. I love mm -hmm. it. Uh, let's see. Uh, all right. Um, and uh, Sandra again came in and said, "Absolutely, we're dehumanizing our kids in schools, and it's abusive." And and you know, I think you um, you know said you know, and, and I agree with you. Um, you know, many of these things that we're talking about. Um, you know, on one end, you can you can think, well, these are misguided practices, but the the end result can be abusive, and uh, you know, making that shift I think is so critical. But um, it seems like we're we're sometimes up against the large system. But you know, like you said, you know, one at a time, you know, doing all that we can, sharing this information, you know, as the science becomes available, even connecting with groups like your group. Uh, so you can share that information with your schools or or with your therapist, I think is always something you can do that's helpful. Mm -hmm. All right. And it looks like somebody else put your website in for me. So thank you, uh, Caroline, for putting that in. And I'm just going to take one last look here. You know, we, we've got a, a lot of um, you know, the comments keep coming. Lots of great stuff. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, people just thanking you for sharing this information uh, and supporting people. So uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but really, really appreciate you uh, coming on today. And, and again, this has been a really fantastic um, presentation and one I hope you'll be using um, over and over again. Of course, we'll have the live version that you can point people to uh, and, and please do um, share. But really want to thank you. Um, you know, you are, um, you know, the, the work that you've done and, and really where you have arrived and what you're doing is really inspirational. Um, so you know, really thank you for, for all that you're doing and, 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 you know, again, um, amplifying, uh, voices working together with, with individuals, um, and organizations that, um, can make positive change. So, um, thank you so much. I'll, I'll give you a chance if there's any last, uh, thoughts you have or final comments. Well, I thank you for this opportunity. I'm, I was super nervous, as you know, but um, I'm really glad that I did it. And then I also want to thank you for your guidance. Um, for those who don't know, Guy's organization helps sh shape our practice ideologies on restraint and seclusion. And he actually helped craft part of that website um, and our policies and things like that. So you yourself has been instrumental in our practices. So thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. And, and I'm happy anytime that we can, you know, do that to, to work with you. And, you know, one of our goals is to collaborate with, with other like-minded individuals and organizations um, because together we can get more, more help to more people. And uh, Aspen, thanks for that comment. Amplify autistic voices. Uh, I think that's, that's critical. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and and I promised you when, before we started this, I said, it'll be fun. So I hope it was fun. I really enjoy these. And, and I think maybe selfishly, I keep doing them because they're, they're, they are not only informative. And, and I say that kind of joking, but, um, you know, I really enjoy doing these and, and having these dialogues and getting to share 
all of the things that, that you're doing with, with other people, because, you know, these conversations can make a difference. You know, something that somebody hears here um, can, can trickle down and make a difference in somebody's life. So thank you so much. And, and again, I, I hope it was enjoyable for you. Yeah. Good. Well, that means I can ask you to come back again. <laughs> <laughs> so I already have a couple ideas on that. So thank All you right. so much. I will let you go. I've got a couple announcements for everybody else, okay. but I thank you so much and look forward to talking to you and working with you again. Thank you. All right. Take care. Uh, so thank you everybody for joining us today. Um, really fantastic presentation. Really enjoyed this today. And I hope you did as well. Um, I do want to mention that we have another event coming up again in two weeks. So we do these every two weeks. Uh, almost always it will be Thursday afternoon for us here on the East Coast in the United States. It's 3.30 in the afternoon. Uh, your times may vary. And of course, we have people all over the world. Uh, so if you happen to be in Australia, it's already tomorrow. You're watching this on Friday morning. Uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, but thank you. Uh, and to let you know, we do have our next event coming up in two weeks. We're going to be talking to Kim Sanders. Uh, Kim Sanders is the president of Ukero Systems. Uh, Ukero's a approach to reduce the use of restraint seclusion. Uh, so we will talk about that in two weeks and look forward to that. So thank you all so much and look forward to seeing you again. Take care.